Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What will we find in today's Thursday thrillers here on the Mutual Audio Network? A few baffling mysteries? Perhaps a touch of murder? Let's find out. The following audio drama is rated PG for parental guidance recommended. The Mysteries of Dr. John Thorndike. Thorndike is the original fictional forensic detective from the early 1900s, using science to aid the art of detection to bring criminals to justice. This time presenting number 31 New Inn Road. Written by R. Austin Freeman. Adapted for radio by Heather Elliott. Ah, the prodigal has returned. As dramatic as ever I see, Thorndike. Oh, come in, come in. I was beginning to wonder if you were serious about accepting my offer to become my assistant, Dr. Jervis. Here I am. My luggage will be arriving tomorrow. May I store them while I find suitable living quarters? You'll stay with us. Polton has a room made up for you. I couldn't impose. Not a bother. I've got a potential client arriving in around two hours. Gentlemen, are we ready to begin? Yes. As you know, I am a barrister myself. Quite right, Mr. Marchmont. I can safely assure you my client's case is strictly legal. A will that is in dispute and there is nothing that can be done. Then what brings your client to me? I'm Stephen Blackmore. The short of the matter is this. My uncle Jeffrey named me executor and sole legatee to his will, and he recently passed away. What is the value of the estate? About 3,500 pounds. Several months ago, it appears Jeffrey Blackmore returned to London and moved into an apartment at 31 New Inn Road. This was unusual? It was unusual that not even one of his friends knew where he was living. Only his younger brother Mortimer Blackmore was aware of the move. Legally speaking... We haven't much of a leg to stand on. A second will was drawn up last year that is sound, but slightly more vague than the original. Are there significant changes? The entire property was bequeathed to Stephen, except for the 250 pounds for Jeffrey's younger brother, Mortimer, and naming Mortimer the executor and residuary legatee. Uh, Forgive my ignorance of legal terms, but what is a residuary legatee. It's a person named in the will to receive any residue left in an estate after the specific bequests have been made. So with this new second will, your other uncle, Mortimer Blackmore, would receive anything not specifically designated to Stephen. Exactly. That would have been fine, except that two days before Uncle Jeffrey's death, his sister died, and her will bequeathed her entire property to my uncle, estimated at about 30,000 pounds. By Jove, what an unfortunate affair. By the original will, the additional money would have gone to young Blackmore here. But with the second will in place, his uncle Mortimer receives all of his sister's estate. Hmm. Do you think your uncle Jeffrey knew of his sister's intentions? There has been no communication between them for years. I have looked into the second will. 
and determined it is genuine. Uh, Stephen, would you mind sharing how your Uncle Jeffrey died? Apparently an overdose of strophanthin, a heart stimulant, after acquiring an opium habit. Did you know of the opium habit? No. He seems to have picked it up around the same time as his return to England and moved to New Inn Road. His handwriting began to deteriorate then as well. <laughs> perplexing, as you said. Very perplexing. <laughs> I think the learned counsel is floored. <laughs> Give me some time to stew on the facts. Thank you, gentlemen. Would you be interested in seeing the apartments where my uncle was found? Ah, excellent. Thank you. Here we are, 31 New Inn Road. Unusually empty for my Uncle Jeffrey, except that painting on the wall. He never had it hung before, always sitting on his desk at the other house. That's an unusual print. Over there. Cuneiform characters. Uncle Jeffrey was an avid student of that form of writing. It's uh, upside down. You can read it? Uh, just enough to know it's been put on the wall incorrectly. My uncle must have been quite blind by the time he died to not notice that. He was going blind? Practically blind in one eye and had a cataract in the other. Hmm, most interesting. Do you think it bears on the case? Blackmore going blind? All information is important, uh, like these. Broken glass, a bead, and a stub of a pencil? There are more oddities about this apartment than things that make sense. I'd wager the bead came from a woman's dress, or maybe a cloak. But my uncle was a long-time bachelor. Uh, like I said, oddities. I'll bring these back to my lab for further study, if you don't object. Busy afternoon, eh? <laughs> Very. Say, how did that compass device work out for you? I've been dying to know what you can make of the directions I've took down. Have you seen any more of your mysterious patient? I was called back a second time. Same windowless carriage as the first time. But I took your compass and notebook, like you instructed, and wrote down every turn the carriage made and every sound I could hear outside it. And the patient, uh, Mr. Graves? Deathly ill. I'm sure he was being poisoned by that German man and his housekeeper. Mr. Graves seemed to recover briefly with the medication I gave him. Every time he tried to speak to me, that housekeeper shushed him. And the other man, Mr. Weiss? For being terribly concerned about his friend, Mr. Weiss was absent for almost my entire visit and seemed reluctant to believe Mr. Graves was suffering from anything but sleeping sickness. Hmm. Do you have your list of directions with you? Still in my coat pocket. Then I can plot it on a map and see if we can figure out where this mysterious house is. So, this is your mysterious house? Yes. Both times I came, the coachman drove around for an hour. It's just a few streets from Dr. Stillsbury's office. Something sinister was happening here. It was very kind of the manager to allow us to poke around the upstairs. The occupants lived here for six months before leaving as suddenly as they arrived. A man and a woman. And the woman still has the key to the rooms. Ah, we must be very careful to not be seen. There's a letter in the box that arrived from a pharmaceutical company in Germany. There's no doubt the woman kept the key in anticipation of the letter coming after they moved away. She'll be stopping sometime to pick it up, I'm sure. This place is even more dismal in the daylight. There were extra bolts on the door. Yes, I noticed those. The windows have them, too. Your patient appears to have been kept here against his will. I wish I knew what happened to Mr. Graves, and if he pulled through. What are you doing on the floor, Thorndyke? 
The floor has been swept into the fireplace. There's some paper scraps, a few sticks, and some bits of broken glass. Broken glass? What do you suppose it's from? We won't know until we take them back to the lab and piece them together. Do you think those sticks are important? Jervis, back away from the window. We don't want that woman to see us in here. Do you think she's come for the letter already? We need to take precautions on our way home. If they were slowly poisoning someone to death here, I can imagine they'll be desperate to keep it a secret. We must keep my involvement in the case secret. Don't return to the house directly, and take your time doing so. He's home, sir. Yes, and you don't have to announce it to the world. I've been rather anxious about you, Christopher. It was a grave mistake letting you travel home on your own. You are the only one they know to be a threat to them, and they could do something to silence you. Like drop a poison sugar cube into my teacup while I wasn't looking? Thank goodness I hadn't poured the tea at that. I don't take sugar with it anyway. I strongly suspect it was the woman. Here, I brought it back for you to test. Confound it all. She must have followed us on the omnibus, or taken the electric trains underground, and gambled on where you were going. You should have taken precautions, Christopher. Too little too late. You didn't come directly back here. No. I was careful not to lead them right to your doorstep. It would be too great a loss if you were to be done in. <laughs> now you're being dramatic. Oh, dear. What? Did you just taste the sugar? Sometimes the simplest methods are the best. I dissolved the sugar in water, diluted it to some degree. Try a drop, but be careful. A little will go a long way. Taste it, but don't swallow. Tell me what it is. Aconite, or in layman's terms, wolfsbane. The woman saw me drinking my tea after I removed the sugar lump, but I don't expect she saw that. I was very discreet. She did look terrified. Well, probably her first direct attempt to kill someone. The amount of aconite in this sugar is enough to kill you twice in a fairly short amount of time. I'm afraid I simply can't allow you out of the house until the mystery of your Mr. Graves is solved and your life is no longer in danger. I would disagree, except I am rather shaken by the event. No visitors or communication with anyone outside the house. How long am I supposed to be imprisoned? And what do you expect me to do during my confinement? <laughs> Earn your keep, of course. Start by writing down every last detail you can, from both visits with Mr. Weiss and Mr. Graves. And I want everything, Christopher. Next, I've had Poulton lay out all the papers relating to the Blackmore case. What am I to do with that? Read them. Take notes. Conjure theories. Familiarize yourself with the case from back to front. I'm a doctor, Thorndike, not a lawyer. I haven't got the head for that sort of work, or I would have done it. <laughs> I was the same way on my first case. The more you study up, the more experience you'll gain along the way. How's the Blackmore case coming along, Jervis? Any new insights for me? I may as well be pounding my head against a brick wall. Oh, cheer up. I've brought along a diversion. Mr. Britton of the bank where Jeffrey Blackmore held his accounts. Pleased to meet you, sir. Yes, of course. Upstairs to the lab, if you will. Ordinarily, the bank does not allow this sort of thing, sir. But seeing as Mr. Blackmore is deceased, I don't see the harm in allowing it. I would much appreciate it if you kept this to yourself. Rest assured we will. Ah, in here. Poulton has the camera set up on the other side of the room. What are we doing? I've asked Mr. Britton for permission to photograph all of the checks issued by the bank while Jeffrey Blackmore was residing at the apartment in 31 New Inn Road. Oh, you can be quite sure none of these checks are forgeries. 
Thank you. Uh, having the photographs will allow me to make as many copies as I need and are as good as having the original in my hand. Laying six out at a time should do nicely. Uh, how many have you got? Twenty-three. Excellent. This shouldn't take long and you can be on your way. Day five of my confinement. Any thoughts on when I can safely roam the streets of London? <laughs> You're being dramatic again, Jervis. I'm going wild from being cooped up in your house, as nice as it is. I've been through every paper on the Blackmore case at least a dozen times. Nothing makes sense. Let's run through the facts quickly. Maybe that will help. We can start with the obvious fact that the second will was not needed since it contained nothing new, and the first will was quite clear and efficient. Good. It was clearly the intention of Jeffrey Blackmore to leave the bulk of his property to his nephew Stephen. The sister's estate went to Jeffrey upon her death, thereby becoming part of his estate. But it wasn't specifically mentioned in the second will, so the sister's estate goes to Mortimer. A careful study of all 23 signatures from the checks and both wills show that the signature of Jeffrey Blackmore on the second will is slightly different than the first will, and Blackmore's usual signature but shares the same characteristics of all the checks. Oh, I don't recall you telling me that. Oh, didn't I? Slight changes in Blackmore's signature began around September last year and became permanent by October the same year. Perhaps an illness, or as evidenced by his death, the ill effects of a drug habit. Also in the apartment in 31 New Inn Road, a large painting with cuneiform characters hung upside down on the wall. Broken pieces of what appears to be the glass from a watch was found on the floor. Along with some other small objects. I'm as lost as ever, Thorndyke. I can't see how you have a case against the second will. I have some theories. By the way, how are you with remembering faces? Decent enough. Why? Well, take a look at this photograph and tell me if you've seen this gentleman before. The face seems familiar. Hang on. That's Mr. Graves, my mystery patient. Have you looked into the pharmaceutical company in Germany? Did they know of Mr. Weiss? I did, and they do. He has purchased from them 100 grams of pure morphine. And that Mr. Weiss was insistent the illness could not be from morphine poisoning. He was no doubt trying hard to convince you. Someone in London has to know who Mr. Weiss is and where he went. Wait. The coachman who took me to see Mr. Graves both times. Have you found him? I doubt I will. Didn't it occur to you that he and Mr. Weiss are the same man? Impossible! Mr. Weiss is a German and the coachman was Scottish. They look completely different in appearance. Ah, appearances can be made to deceive. You said yourself they were never in the room at the same time, always coming and going before the other and staying in the shadows when they were around. No one can change that much. Thorndyke, have you... Oh, pardon me. I was expecting my friend. Do you have an appointment, sir? No, but I'll wait. Very well. <laughs> Excuse me. I'll go see when Dr. Thorndyke will be back. Holton? He's out. Thorndyke, I didn't know you were back. Is there something you need? There's an 
unsightly fellow downstairs waiting for you, grinning at me like a fool over the newspaper. I'm trying to go through some more of the Blackmore papers for you, and he keeps sniggering and playing an infernal game of peekaboo with me and that blasted newspaper. <laughs> Our friend downstairs seems to have put you out, Jervis. If I stayed any longer, I should have punched him in the face. Oh, come now, that's unlike you, Jervis. Let me introduce you. No, thank you. I've seen enough of him. I think you know each other. Certainly not. <laughs> you have met this gentleman before. Oh, yes, Jervis. Yeah, yeah, you've met me all right. Bolton? What happened to you? Dr. Thorndike happened to me. I merely persuaded him to assist me in a demonstration of wigs, fake beards and eyebrows, and theatrical makeup. Astonishing. If Bolton were to walk down the street in this get-up in broad daylight, the effect would be obvious. And ridiculous. But on stage, well, that's why they call it stage makeup. All you need is the right lighting to obscure the subtle hints and complete the illusion. But why the get-up? What, what are you demonstrating? Isn't it obvious? This is how the red-haired Scottish coachman and dark-haired German Mr. Weiss could be the same man. Makeup and wigs? Yes. I suppose. His face... As Mr. Weiss seemed unnaturally red around the cheekbones. Maybe from pulling off false whiskers? <laughs> Would a get-up like this fool a person in daylight? Yes, a more subtle variation that takes longer to prepare could pass as natural to the casual observer. You really believe that Mr. Weiss was playing the part to fool me? It's a reasonable explanation that fits all the facts. Poulton, Wilkins the cabbie is coming to answer some questions. Would you let him in when he arrives? With a face all done up like this? He won't know what you usually look like. Ha! That must be him. Make yourself at home. Have some whiskey. Thank you. I'm going to jot down this interview, and I'll have you sign to affirm it's correct. If that's what you need from me. Your name is Wilkins? That's me. Samuel Wilkins. Cab driver. Well, Wilkins, do you happen to remember a very foggy day about a month ago? A real sneezer that was. Wednesday the 14th of March. Yes, sir. I remember the date. Will you tell me what happened to you between 6 and 7 in the evening that day? Oh, a little before 6, I was waiting at King's Cross Station when I see a gentleman and a lady come out. Do you, do you know the way to New Inn Road, he asks me. And you took them there? Yes, sir. Took near half an hour. Stopped at number 31 and they both get out and start up the stairs real slow like. That's the last I saw them. Can you give us a description of the gentleman? Uh, the gentleman was real respectable-looking, though he did look as though he'd had a drop of something short. You know what I mean. He was all there, gave me the proper fare, but he wobbled as he walked. It seemed like he couldn't see through his spectacles. And the woman? Don't know much about that. Couldn't see much of her because her head was wrapped up in a veil, and she had a small hat on. She had a dark brown mantle with a fringe of beads around it and a black dress. And what condition was she in? Seemed a bit rickety on the pins, if I say so myself. Rum-looking couple. I see them tottering across the pavement and up those stairs, hanging on to each other. Him peering through his blinkers, and she trying to see through her veil. Could, could. Well, if you would just sign here, I think this will do nicely. Will you need me in court for something? I, I don't suppose, but I'll contact you if we do. <sighs> Thanks for the grog. And thank you for the information. It's been most helpful. We've all come as you requested, Thorndike. 
Now tell me what you mean by your outrageous letter. You can't be serious. My conclusion was a little unexpected, I see. Unexpected? It's preposterous! Mr. Winwood, please calm down. I'm anxious to hear Dr. Thorndyke's reasoning for telling us the second will is a forgery. I have been practicing law since you were an infant in arms. You are telling me the witnesses are unreliable? Winwood, sit down. I take it you have some facts we do not? Yes, some new ones, and we have made new use of some of the old ones. How shall I tell it to you? Just the facts to start with. A painting with cuneiform characters in Jeffrey Blackmore's apartment was found hung upside down. He must have been practically blind for it to hang for months without being noticed. I see what you're getting at. You think the second will was slipped to Blackmore without him knowing what he was signing. Doesn't make it a forgery. When the witnesses signed it, the will wasn't read aloud. My uncle might not have even known he was signing a will. Can you prove that? No, I intend to prove forgery. The next set of data was recalled to me by Dr. Jervis of a very strange adventure that befell him. Mr. Graves? How does he connect to the Blackmore case? Who? Jervis? I was called to assist a dangerously ill man by the name of Mr. Graves. Thorndyke seems to think the man was being kept against his will by a German couple, Mr. Weiss and his housekeeper. They were very careful to keep me from knowing the exact location of the house. A few days ago, with the chart I advised Jervis to make, we were able to locate this house and explore the premises. The rubbish from the floor had been swept into the fireplace, and from the sticks and other pieces, I determined someone in the apartment had been using a wig and theatrical makeup. Does this mean nothing to you? I'm very interested, but I'm afraid I don't follow. It'll make sense. Let me move on to the next fact. A signed and witnessed statement of Samuel Wilkins, the driver of the cab in which the deceased came home to 31 New Inn Road on the evening of his death, with a woman. With a woman? We must find out who she is. My uncle was an old bachelor. What are you suggesting? I have another witness testimony from a cabbie by the name of Joseph Ridley, who picked up a woman on the day of the fog and took her part of the way to King's Cross Station. She had him stop, she disappeared into the fog, and returned a minute later with a gentleman. The cabbie said the woman's face was wrapped in a thick veil, but he couldn't swear it was the same woman. King's Cross? That would mean they didn't come in on the train, merely made it look like they had. That's correct. But who is this woman? My suggestion is that the woman was Jeffrey Blackmore. But my good sir, Jeffrey Blackmore was with her at that time. Naturally, my suggestion implies that the gentleman was not Jeffrey Blackmore. Earlier, you seemed to suggest a connection between my uncle and this other man, Mr. Graves. Was I right? Is there a connection? I suggest they are one and the same. This photograph you lent me of your uncle Jeffrey has been identified by Dr. Jervis as the man he attended to. How is that possible? He's been living at 31 New Inn Road for several months. I believe he never lived there at all. Stephen himself said the room was uncharacteristically empty. You're not making any sense. Why don't we pause for some coffee and clear our brains a bit? I still have more to explain. Now I can see why Reuben recommended Dr. Thorndyke to me. He takes an unusual approach. Shall we continue? I'm curious to know how you plan to provide satisfactory proof of these speculations. Ah, uh, hypotheses, Mr. Marchmont, not speculations. Stephen, your aunt died from cancer, am I correct? Yes, quite suddenly. Uh, people rarely die quite suddenly from the cancer she had. In fact, taking into account the coincidental timing of her death and that of Jeffrey Blackmore, I would feel confident in saying it was planned. How do you plan a death by cancer? 
Well, not her death, no. It was a matter of making sure Jeffrey Blackmore died after her, but before he could be informed of her passing. Oh. I see you're beginning to understand, Jervis. If my uncle did not live at 31 New Inn Road, who did? The manager said a gentleman was in and out frequently. Who might resemble your uncle in build and appearance? Who has an interest in gaining something upon his death? Who could hang a photograph upside down on the wall for months, not because he didn't see it, but because he couldn't read it? Mortimer Blackmore! Why didn't I put that together sooner? Mortimer Blackmore? My other uncle? Why not? He kept his brother shut up in a room, drugged with morphine and opium, until he heard of the death of their sister, after which he dressed Jeffrey as a woman and took him to the house on New Inn Road. Where he administered a lethal dose of morphine. It didn't take much to discover that Mortimer Blackmore had been an actor of considerable experience. Incidentally, Jervis, the broken glass we found was not from a watch. Oh? They were from spectacles, with a precise prescription made for Jeffrey four years ago. And the housekeeper? Have you identified her? Her name is Pauline Hagenbeck, a member of an American theatrical company. Is this all of your evidence? Yes, it is. Have you gone to the police with this? Yes. I had an appointment with the Assistant Commissioner at Scotland Yard, and the case is in the hands of Superintendent Miller of the Criminal Investigation Division. He's a very prompt man and meticulous in his work. I expect to hear from him tomorrow, as it is after midnight already. How fortuitous, Superintendent. We were just talking about you. This is Stephen Blackmore and his solicitors, Mr. Marchmont and Mr. Winwood. I believe you know Dr. Jervis? I've arrived just in time, I see, although I don't know what you will think of my news. Have you got them? In a manner of speaking. After getting warrants for their arrest, we kept watch on their apartment. They took a cab to the train station, and I managed to catch the same train before they could give me the slip. Found them in a train car, apparently fast asleep in the corner. Ah, uh, they were dead, I suppose. Yes, sir. Stone dead. I found these on the floor of the carriage. Two small glass bottles with hypodermic tablets. Aconitine nitrate. With these doses, death must have occurred in a few minutes. A more merciful death than they deserved when one thinks of the misery and suffering they inflicted on poor Uncle Jeffrey. With their deaths, there is nothing left to the case. Quite right. Everything that was intended for you, Stephen, is rightfully yours. Oh, quite the case, eh, Thorndyke? How do you do it? <laughs> do what, Jervis? Notice everything and fit it together so perfectly. Practice over time. You'll get there, Jervis. I'm tuckered for the night, but what do you say to a lunch out at a restaurant to celebrate your release from confinement? I'd be immensely grateful. The Mysteries of Dr. John Thorndyke, Written by R. Austin Freeman. Adapted for radio by Heather Elliott. Starring Dave Johnson as Dr. John Thorndyke. Roy Nessel as Dr. Christopher Jervis. Also in the cast were Michael Ingalls as Stephen Blackmore, Reed Thompson as Mr. Marchmont, Will Crow as Samuel Wilkins, Jim Galan as Mr. Winwood, David Anderson as Poulton, Daryl Moffat as Mr. Britton, and Evan Ricci as Superintendent Miller. I'm your announcer, Ryan Barker. Sound design and dialogue editing, Jay Charles. Recording engineer, Kevin Hughes. Recording technician, Bobby Wiley. Production assistant, Ziona Pettigrew. Directed by Steve Chambers. Produced by Joseph C. McGuire. Recorded in partnership at KSVR Studios in Mount Vernon, Washington. This was a Radio Theater Project presentation.